couple weeks ago when we launched this, we did this two-part series where we talked to Stephen Wellam, who is a systematic theologian at Southern Seminary, and then we talked with Greg Lanier, who's a New Testament scholar at RTS, which is the seminary that a couple of us go to out in Orlando. And Dr. Lanier said something that I've been thinking about as we kind of walk through this Advent season and sort of step out of Advent into the season of Christmas. Uh, He said, it tends to be the case that especially in the evangelical church, especially among sort of conservative Christians, that we so spotlight the cross, we so focus on the cross, that we don't really leave any light for any of the other aspects of Jesus' life. Uh, we, we talk so much about the cross that it's almost as if uh, the rest of the Gospels that lead up to the cross, we could just totally ignore or get the Spark Notes version of. It's, it's almost as if we would say to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you said to, you should have just gotten to the cross. And they're like, no, we wrote that for a reason. Like, that's important too. And as I think about it, in a lot of ways, I, I think he might be right that we talk so much about the cross that we act as though all of these other facets of Jesus' life are somehow unimportant or just a footnote to the crucifixion. Now, hear what I'm saying. I want to be really clear here. The cross of Christ, his substitutionary death on behalf of sinners, it is absolutely central to the gospel. It is absolutely foundational. But what makes the cross effective What makes it a substitute and a payment for sin is the entirety of the life that stands behind it. What makes the cross anything more than one of the sad stories of history is the resurrection and ascension that takes place after it. Now, I don't say this to be like sacrilegious or or weird in any way, but I don't don't know if you're aware of this. Jesus is an exceptionally common name in the ancient world. It's like John Smith in the modern world. There were likely thousands of men named Jesus who were crucified on Roman crosses. But none of us would argue that the death of some random Jesus in the ancient Near East uh, on a cross is the hinge upon which the world turns. No, we argue that this specific life ending in this specific death and carrying through to a resurrection and an ascension, this is the single most important event in the world. Because this Jesus that we are talking about is not just some random man who happened to live in the ancient world. This Jesus is God the Son incarnate. And so Christians for a very long time have recognized that it's not just the cross of Christ that is the gospel. It's the incarnation. It's his sinless life. It's his teaching about the kingdom. It's his miracles. It's his ascension. It's his resurrection. It's his return. All of this is bound up in what the gospel is. And so in sort of the, the Christian calendar, they set aside seasons, and Christians have set aside seasons to reflect on all of the different aspects of the life of Christ that makes his atonement on the cross sufficient. We're kind of tumbling out of Advent and into the season of Christmas where we mark the incarnation. The moment in history where God the Son became flesh and dwelt among us in the womb of a virgin in the armpit of the Roman Empire so long ago. But make no mistake, the incarnation is central to the gospel, just like the cross is central to the gospel. No mere man named Jesus hanging on a cross can make atonement for sin. It must be the incarnate Son of God who does so. 
And so tonight we want to spend some time walking through what we celebrate in the Christmas season as Christians, the incarnation of God the Son. We want to look at it through the gospel according to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there with me. Let me give you just some background um, so that you're aware of what you're reading. I, I mentioned last week as we were walking through Mark, Mark is probably the first gospel written. Uh, Mark is also pretty much the shortest gospel. Now, by contrast, John is probably the last gospel that's written. Uh, And it's interesting, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to follow the same sort of basic outline. They include most of the same basic details about the life of Jesus, the things that he did. And then you read John, and it kind of throws you for a loop, because he, he includes all these things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have not included. But that actually kind of makes perfect sense if John is the last gospel, which is what most scholars would say. Because John very likely has access to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke have just essentially told the same story three times, and John's like, well, I'm going to give you the missing pieces. I'm going to fill in the details. And it's interesting that as you read John, he references things that he doesn't document in his gospel, but are documented in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He, he just assumes that you've read those. And if you, if you want to get the details Matthew, Mark, and Luke include, you'll read those. But But John is intentionally filling in some of the gaps in the story of Jesus that we don't see in the first three Gospels. And it's it's the same in chapter 1 that we'll be spending our time in this evening. Um, It's as if John recognizes that you've probably read Luke's account of the virgin birth. You've probably heard about the, the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary. You've probably heard about the shepherds and the wise men. You've definitely heard it tonight because we read the account of the virgin birth during worship. And so John says, let me tell you what's behind all that. Let me me tell you what stands behind this virgin birth of Jesus. If I can use just a miserable cultural reference that I'll probably regret saying. It's sort of like the gospel of John is the phantom menace to Luke's new hope. (laughs) Uh, Except it's not bad like the phantom menace, which wasn't any good. Um... But that is sort of what stands behind John 1, is that he, you, know, you know the virgin birth of Jesus. Uh, you, you know the Annunciation to Mary. Here's what's behind all of it. And so with that in mind, John speaks. So hear the word of the Lord now through the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John begins, kind of like Mark begins which is at the beginning. He sort of calls our minds back to the opening chapter of the book of Genesis. 
He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. For, for human minds, it's not really possible for us to conceive of something before the beginning. Uh, just even from like a, a linguistic perspective, before the beginning is sort of a logical absurdity. Because the beginning is the beginning, there's nothing before it. But what John wants us to do is, is to call our minds back to the very outermost limits of our perception before the cosmos, before the world, before heaven and earth. And he says, in the beginning, there was the word. That is to say that the word and God have existed. They're eternal. Later on, you'll read and you'll see also through the gospel of John and the rest of the scriptures that the spirit also exists eternally. And so John sort of calls our minds back to before the foundations of the world. And he says, there existed the triune God. He refers to the Father specifically here as God. He refers to Jesus the Son as the Word. He'll refer later on to the Spirit as the Spirit. But he calls our minds back to the beginning. And as you read the text, he goes on to verse 14 and he says, This Word that was there at the beginning became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, a long time ago, um, I had a Facebook, and uh, every so often I have to reactivate my old Facebook because there's, like, numbers for people that I've lost or, like, like booking agents that I need to talk to about shows, and, and I, have to, I have to give in to the evil of the system and use Facebook again. Um, but whenever I reactivate, reactivate Facebook, I'm kind of reminded of, like, why I left it in the first place. Uh, which is namely that people are terrible, and the more people you're in contact with, the more terror you're likely to encounter. Um, I'm a great pastor. Uh, um, but like one, one of like the things that sort of tweaked me off of Facebook is that people are real argumentative on the internet, um, and I wasn't particularly good at not arguing back. And so I said, I'm just going to remove this stumbling block from my life. Um, but one of the arguments that kind of sent me over the edge uh, was I, I posted like this, this meme that was like theological, which theology memes are just corny in the first place, but, <laughs> but I thought it was funny at the time, and I probably still would think it was funny. Um, and my friend who was a non-believer, I don't know where he would land on the spectrum of not being a Christian, but he kind of just launches into, I can never believe in uh, Christianity, because the God of the Old Testament is this angry, vindictive, mean-spirited guy, and then he sends his son Jesus to sort of smooth things over, and Jesus is this God of love, and the Old Testament God is this God of anger. And, man, if you're a Christian in this room, I would probably venture to say that you wouldn't quite put it like that. You wouldn't quite say it the way that he says it. But I would venture to say that, that some of us have this sort of uneasiness about the wrath that we see in the Old Testament, um, the destruction of uh, wicked people groups that, that the Lord carries out. And, and some of us might even kind of just hover over the Old Testament and just skim it for fear that like we're going to catch something in it that's going to just turn our stomach into knots. And so functionally, we kind of follow this friend of mine who thinks that somehow the God of the Old Testament is in direct opposition to the God of the New Testament. John won't let you have it that way. Like What John wants to make abundantly clear is that there has only ever been one God, 
the Father, Son, and Spirit who were there in the beginning. He, he wants to make abundantly clear in his opening sort of prologue that the God who created from nothing, the God who called Abraham out to be the father of many nations, the God who delivered the people of Israel from slavery and passed judgment on the Egyptians, the God who brought down the kingdom of Saul and forgave the iniquity of David. This is the very same God who is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ as he hangs from the cross. There is no other God but the one who was there in the beginning as the Father, as the Word from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this, this cuts in two different ways for us. Um, because I would venture to say there's kind of two camps here. When, when we conceive of God, if you conceive of God and, and believe in God, um, we tend to make him over into our image in two different ways. So there's some of us who are keenly aware of the fact that sin is bad. I guess that's kind of like the understatement of the century. Um, that sin is bad. It deserves judgment. There's no sort of incompatibility in your gut. You don't get tied up in knots thinking about God judging people who are sinners. You probably actually kind of delight in it. You're like, yes, justice. But Sometimes we emphasize the justice of God to the exclusion of the love of God. We fail to recognize what John wants to make clear. The very same God who passes judgment on unrepentant sinners is the one who in the incarnate word says, I am meek and lowly of heart. Come to me, all you who are burdened and weary. I will give you rest. But there's, but there's others of us who, for fear of that image of like the judgmental God, uh, we've run in the opposite direction, and we have sort of this hippie Jesus uh, who would never judge anybody for anything. Um, and if he would judge anybody, he definitely wouldn't tell them because who is he to say who's right and who's wrong and what's right for you and what's wrong for me? But John won't let you have that either because all of the love that you see in, in the works of Christ throughout the Gospels, he, he wants you to know that the very same Jesus in the words of Jude, who led the people of Israel out of slavery, later on destroyed those who did not believe. This is the same God who we've seen in the Old Testament. He is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And he goes on in verse 2. He says, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. So, What's going on here is, as he kind of reaches back into creation, he says that everything was made through this word, the Son of God, and nothing was made apart from him. So there's a common view during John's day, uh, actually comes from a guy named Plato, maybe you've heard of him before. Uh, Plato's idea was that there's one God who created, but that matter was eternal, and so God just is kind of being God, and he goes, look at all this stuff that's here along with me. I'll, I'll make a world out of it. And so, so John is, is first and foremost pushing back on that. He's saying, no, everything that exists was created. Matter didn't exist before God or alongside God. He made it. The Word created it. But, but he's also doing something I think that's even more interesting uh, as he talks about Jesus' role in creation because he's saying everything that was made is made through the Word of God, the Son of God which means that not a single thing escapes his grasp. From the, the, the furthest 
galaxy uh, to the smallest particle, all of it has come into being through the sun. I realize maybe not everybody is done with finals like I thought that you would be. Um, But when you do get done with finals, uh, if you want to just read a book for fun, which I guess sounds like sadism to most people, I would recommend, especially around this time of year, that you read a book by a guy named Athanasius called On the Incarnation. Uh, It's like this big. You can probably find the whole thing online. Um, I want to warn you up front, it's probably going to depress you when you figure out sort of some of the semantics around it or the the setting that's taking place around it. So uh, Athanasius is this early church father. He lives around 300 to 325 A.D., He's one of the chief people who defends the deity of Christ against people who say that Jesus is not divine. His name was a close runner-up for my cat's name, if Ignatius had not worked. And he writes on the, this is what's depressing, he writes on the incarnation at 17 years old. Uh, So you'll, once you read it, you'll say, what have I done with all of my life? Like, how how did he write this at 17 and like, I can't even remember to text people back at 27? (laughs) But, but in it, he's, just, he's kind of ruminating on this question, why did God have to become man? Why did the word have to become flesh? Why was this the necessary way for salvation? And he kind of poses this hypothetical scenario. He says, okay, so suppose that there's a king, and, and he establishes a kingdom. I guess you have to do that to be a king. Um, you can't just say, I'm king of nothing. And he populates it with good things for citizens. He builds these high walls of protection. He invites people to come and live in his city and, and feast with him and celebrate with him. And suppose that the people who live in this king's city either turn against him or the people outside of the city sort of lay siege to it and they, they attack its walls. What does a good king do in that situation? Like, What does a good king who truly loves his people do? Athanasius says, a good king does not just sort of abandon his people and say, have fun, I'm going to watch it burn, I'll go establish a new one. Nor does he sort of give up and say, well, the guys outside want to kill you, I don't much like you myself, so you're going to die. No, he says, a good king, despite the, the foolishness of his people, despite whatever they might have done, A good king is going to step in and not allow them to be given over to destruction. And then he he goes on and he says, All the more so, the word of the all-good father did not neglect the race of human beings. Created by himself, which was going to corruption, but he blotted out death through the offering of his own body, correcting their carelessness by his teaching, restoring every aspect of human beings by his power. This is why John gets into the fact that everything has been made through the word of God that is Jesus. Because it's that same word that created everything that now steps into the burning kingdom and says, I will not let you burn. It's the same word that made everything that steps into creation in verse 14 and says, I'm going to fix what's gone wrong here. It's because Jesus has created everything that in the book of Revelation, he can say, behold, I make all things new because I made everything in the first place. But but this is what makes it even more tragic as you kind of go through this portion of John's gospel because he says he came to their own. He came to his own and his own received him not. 
that the creator of all steps down to his creation and the creation that he has come to save rejects him and delights as the city burns. I would venture to say that, that John's words are true for some of us in this room. That, that maybe you've been, you've been coming here for days, weeks, months, years. You're not really sure what you make of this Jesus guy. Uh, he seems pretty cool. And that's fine. And, and if you want to continue to give your Thursday nights to hear about this pretty cool Jesus guy, I'm, I'm happy to get up here and continue to talk about him. But man, my prayer, my prayer is, is that at some point, by the power of the Spirit, you would move from receiving him not Uh, from rejecting him as truly being Savior and Lord, and you would move into this next category that John talks about in verse 12. All who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He goes on. He says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh. That word which has existed for all eternity, that word through whom all things were made, became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, Full of grace, truth. There's a, there's a Catholic author named Dorothy Sayers, and it's okay to think Catholics have good things to say, because they do. And Dorothy Sayers, as she's writing about verse 14, she, she makes this statement, from the beginning of time until now, it is the only thing that's ever really happened. We may call this doctrine exhilarating, we may call it devastating, we may call it revelation, or we can call it rubbish, but if we call this boring, what in heaven's name could ever be worth calling exciting? Listen, I, I want to argue, and I feel like I say this a lot, know that I mean this more now than the other times that I've said it. V- verse 14 of the Gospel of John may be the single most earth-shattering thing ever written by a human being. It may be the single most profound thing ever written. That the eternal Son of God took on humanity. That is profound in a way that little else could ever hope to be. And the way that um, John writes this in the Greek, it's kind of just worth noting here that what John describes when he says the word became flesh, this is, this is a permanent action in the Greek. This, this is not something that can be undone. That is to say that God the Son has united himself to our humanity in a way that will never be reversed. And with the stroke of a pen, John undoes hundreds of misconceptions that we might have about who God is and what he's like. You know, I'm not trying to be uh, political, and I hope that this doesn't come as a shock to you, but not every single person who founded our country was a Christian. Um, some of them were what we might call deists. Uh, maybe you've never heard of that before, but it was this popular thing in like the 1800s where deists basically said that there's probably a God. He probably created things, but it's kind of like the, the set it and forget it God. He wound up the clock and then he stepped back and he, cle- he doesn't care about what goes on here. He doesn't care about the decisions that I make. Uh, he, he doesn't care about this world or any other world. He's there, but he kind of doesn't really matter so much. And 
deism is not like nearly as popular as it was in the 17 and 1800s. I've literally never met somebody who says they're a deist. And if you are, please let me know. I would just love to check off the I met a deist box on my to-do list. <laughs> but, but functionally, a lot of us tend to live like that. We, we, we tend to think, okay, so yeah, there's a God. He's probably out there somewhere. Um, I'm sure he's nice. But, but he probably doesn't care very much about what I do, um, what sort of choices I make in my life. He probably doesn't care that much. He probably has bigger fish to fry. He's not worried about all these little people on this little dust ball that we call planet Earth. And, and that might be compelling had John not written verse 14 of his gospel. Because what, what John says in, in verse 14 is that God is not distant. God is not removed from the problems of human pain and human suffering. He's not indifferent to the needs of the world. He's not indifferent to what's going on in our lives. God has drawn so near to us that he has walked down roads in Nazareth. That he's built houses with his hands as a carpenter. That he's eaten dinner with people and laughed and wept and scraped his knees as a child running down the streets towards his parents because the word has become flesh. He's not distant. Or or, or maybe uh, we have sort of a, a different perspective on God that's maybe a bit more negative than his theoretical indifference. We think of God kind of like um, Bruce Almighty. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie that Christians got all up in arms about and it ended up just kind of being whatever. Um, so there's this point where he feels like God is just against him and so he kind of turns, he turns to the heavens and he says, smite me, almighty smiter. It's like the classic line, if you go to the IMDB, that's one of the quotes from Bruce Almighty. Smite me, almighty smiter. And, and, and maybe we think about God in that way, that he's out there somewhere waiting for you to stub your toe and say a cuss word so he can just light you up and destroy you. He's this angry, sort of uh, vindictive God who's, who's angry at creation. Now, I would never, ever in a million years want to downplay God's wrath towards sin. That is a legitimate aspect of God's character bound up in his love and in his justice. And yet, John's going to go on in verse 3 in the most quoted verse in the whole Bible and say that it's out of God's love for the world that, that he sent the Son. It's out of God's love that the Word became flesh. It's not out of a desire to condemn the world but to save it. And so this God who's kind of hanging out there across the ontological gap, just hurling lightning bolts at people who say cuss words and watch rated R movies, it's just not true. He's not this angry God, but he is a God who has so loved the world that he became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son, the word of the Father out of the overflow of love, that the triune God has within himself takes on human form and flesh. He has become like us in every way, not so that 
we would be condemned, but so that stooping down into our darkness, he might raise us up to life. That is what we celebrate in the Christmas season. That that Christ has stepped down and become flesh and taken on all of our frailty and all of our darkness and all of the things that so grieve us and make us weary in this world. He's borne it in his body and he's raised us up to newness of life. And John lays hold of this in the earlier portions of this. He says, in him is life and that life is the light of men. Because the word has become flesh and dwelt among us. That's good news. That's good news worth celebrating. And I pray, I pray that that you would mark it well this Christmas season and every other season.